0: Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Alan Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Alan Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. I wanted this opening concert
1: of my 25th anniversary season to really reflect my passionate interests in music. And so I wanted to program pieces that each had a special meaning to me, pieces that I love to play and love to share with our Capital Region audience. So I've had a long-time fascination with Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, and the Ravel Piano Concerto is one of my absolute favorite pieces, one of the most purely beautiful of all works. So in planning the opening program, Knowing that I wanted to present those two pieces, I cast about for a piece that would complement them well, but that would be a, a new work, ideally by a young up-and-coming composer. And I found just the thing I was looking for. A few years ago, on our American Music Festival, the Albany Symphony's Dogs of Desire, our new music ensemble, and I presented uh, the world premiere of a new piece that we had commissioned by a young Indian-American composer named Rina Esmail. Rina was just at that time in uh, the spring of 2014, graduating from the the doctoral program at Yale, one of the most famous and justly celebrated composition programs in the country and the world. And i had heard a little bit of her music and found it quite fascinating, even though she's born and raised in Los Angeles and all of her early study as a pianist was in the Western classical tradition. uh, She's developed a, a really deep interest and connection to her Indian ancestry and has begun to make a deep study of Hindustani music Uh, Northern Indian music, even has gone so far as to take regular Hindustani vocal technique lessons with a a great singer out on the West Coast and really immerse herself in that music. And so her her recent pieces, starting in 2014 or or a little before that uh, and continuing to today, have really involved themselves very much with the challenge of combining Indian classical music, this Hindustani music, with Western music. So uh, we'd had such a good experience with her in 2014, and she wrote a fabulous kind of piece that really did connect Indian music with Western music uh, that I I invited her this season to become our Mellon-funded composer-educator partner. That means we play an existing piece at the beginning of the season, we commission a major piece at the end of the season, and in between, Rena makes a number of visits to our community where she'll be working with two elementary schools in our Albany Symphony district on a project involving 5th and 6th graders and really putting composition in their hands, teaching them how to be composers or creators of music. So uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of her this year, and that's very exciting. She's a very erudite, interesting, eloquent kind of person, very, very smart, and uh, really a lot of fun. And uh, so I asked her what pieces she might have that might be appropriate to open the season, she sent me this piece Aria for Hindustani Soprano and Orchestra. It was uh, her, her last big piece that she wrote while still a student at Yale, so it's a few years old, but she had um, decided to feature this very specific and beautiful Hindustani vocal technical world and see if there was a way that she might be able to merge a great female vocalist from that tradition with our Western Orchestra. The challenge, probably the most significant challenge she faced, is that in this tradition of, of Indian classical music, the music is really never written down. It's entirely orally passed from singer to singer, from performer to performer. And the songs, the rags, or what I guess we used to call ragas, the rags can tend to be very extensive pieces, can even last 30 minutes or an hour for one melodic structure. Uh, and what happens is that the, the general bones of the structure are sort of passed down, and then the specific artist's artistry is judged on how she, in this case, improvises around those fixed ideas. But so as you can imagine, the challenge for Rena was uh, creating a piece for orchestra, which really only wants notated music. We're not very comfortable improvising, and then featuring this rather improvisatory singer who's not really used to reading music the way we are. So uh, she turned for our performance to a a spectacular uh, Hindustani vocalist who happens currently to live in San Diego, California, but only came here three years ago from India where she trained with the greatest Hindustani singer. And the young singer's name is Sile Oak. Uh, she is in fact Rena's vocal teacher uh, and she's a, a phenomenal artist. And so in this piece, Arya, it features it's about a twelve-minute piece, it features actually two very celebrated rags from the, the Hindustani tradition. And those are woven, the materials of those rags are woven inside and into the orchestra. And the orchestra takes the melodic material that is sort of improvised by the singer and then amplifies it and explores it and sort of meets meets it in various fascinating ways. The opening is, is rather slow and beautiful and introspective. And uh had to understand from Rina and from me how to enter in the right place. But once she enters with her various points of beginnings, she's then rather free and the orchestra sort of joins her in, in very elegant ways at, at various points. Uh, and then the second half, very complicated to put together, is a much faster section, a different rag that's very lively and, and really features these incredible scales from the singer uh, that she has to begin at precisely the right moment. In fact, uh, as we were working on it, Rina sort of re-notated her part, uh, silie's part, the singer's part, so that she would have a, a better idea of exactly where at each point in the beginnings of her runs she would start. She did a beautiful job, and the piece is very atmospheric and beautiful, and I'm, I'm particularly proud of the way it segues most beautifully into Ravel's piano concerto. Ravel, of course, a great, passionate follower of of Eastern music, it's not necessarily Indian as much as, as Asian kinds of music, but there's a sort of purity and beauty to Rena's piece that is very similar in a way to the Ravel. And it turned out, much to my surprise, although I hadn't known this when I programmed the, the concert, that Ravel is one of Rina Esmael's absolute favorite composers. So, here now to open our concert is Rina Esmael's aria for soprano and orchestra, featuring the great Hindustani vocalist Silee Oak. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was
1: Rena Esmael's Aria for Soprano and Orchestra, featuring Siley Oak, vocalist, uh, with the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller and now we make this lovely transition to this incredibly beautiful and pure piece by the great Maurice Ravel. Ravel as you probably know was a, a wonderful pianist himself and, and a great great composer for piano I think he really you know he was a very meticulous craftsman in fact he was even sometimes referred to as, as the watchmaker or the clockmaker because his, his music has a sort of almost like an engineer's perfection to it. It's extremely I find emotionally rich but in a, a very detached pure kind of way and In a way, to me, maybe that certain Mozart pieces are, that they're so purely etched that they seem almost beyond human creation because they're so purely perfect. So in this piece, Ravel waited to rather late in his career, until about 1929, 1930, to, uh, to write his two piano concerti, and he wrote them back to back. This one first, followed by that very interesting and unusual concerto for the left hand, which is really only designed to be played with one hand. It was written for the, the one-armed pianist, Mr. Wittgenstein, who had lost an arm in the war and commissioned a great number of composers to write left-hand concerti. But the concerto at hand here is the first of the two concertos. This is the one for two hands, in fact. And uh, it's in G major, a very bright key. And it's largely influenced, and I think you can really hear this in, in our performance, and I think in any performance of the piece, it, it's greatly influenced by a trip that Ravel made to the United States, I think in 1927. He came here, he came to New York, he spent a good bit of time here, uh, meeting people like George Gershwin, for whom he had a great respect and admiration. He knew the Rhapsody in Blue quite well, and, and even touring Harlem and visiting the jazz clubs. He was quite uh, captivated as so many people in Europe during the 20s and 30s by our newfangled American jazz music and and really came to love it. And And I think it really finds its way into particularly the outer movements of this concerto. Three movements, first and last movements, very lively and, and very buoyant and, and almost kind of crazily so. The last movement is is almost to me at certain points it sounds like circus music. The, the orchestra plays in one key with the piano and then these wild woodwind instruments, the E-flat, Clarinet and, and others come in, piccolo come in, uh, really in completely different keys, but in a, a sort of wild circus atmosphere. The first movement, very orchestrally uh, virtuosic. The the wind instruments, the trumpet, the piccolo uh, are asked. Uh, the clarinets are asked to do very very challenging things. These are are passages in these movements, particularly the first movement, that appear on every single orchestral audition. Whenever a, a trumpet player auditions for a symphony orchestra, he or she is asked to play certain excerpts from this movement because it's so virtuosic. So wonderfully buoyant, rather brief outer movements and very jazzy with the most beautiful slow movement, I think, in in all of creation. It begins quite uh, in an unorthodox way with the piano just playing absolutely alone by herself, himself, the pianist. And doing something quite extraordinary. You'll notice as you're listening to this opening of the second movement, the left hand, it almost sounds like a waltz. You hear this chum, 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 boom, chum, chum, boom, chum. It's notated in six, eight, but you really feel one, two, three, one, two. Meanwhile, the melody in the right hand doesn't feel it's in that kind of waltz idea. It's in a much more extended, distended sort of three, four. So an incredible combining of two metric ideas that that really permeate the entire fabric of the movement. They're never jarring. They always feel completely natural and yet it really is as if the pianist is playing with her left hand in one meter and her right hand in another and it's just beautiful the way these two very different kinds of music interact with each other and blend to make this gorgeous songful movement. So what's so unusual about this movement is that the piano really plays for, I don't know, a minute or two at the very beginning all by herself and the orchestra very delicately and elegantly and and with heartfelt emotion sort of joins in. The music never gets too crazy. Uh, it just gets more and more beautiful as the movement goes. And then there's a return at which point the English horn, the anglais, that member of the oboe family, a larger cousin of the oboe, uh, takes over the tune from the very opening from the piano, and there's a very extensive and very beautiful English horn solo. Uh, again, one of the most famous excerpts in the entire English horn repertoire and appears on every single uh, orchestral audition for English horn. Our wonderful English hornist Nat Fon Bosner plays it very, very beautifully, and that brings the slow movement to a close. So here it is, uh, Maurice Ravel's magnificent piano concerto in G major. The pianist is the young Russian-born American pianist Natasha Paremsky. She is accompanied by the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The final work on
1: our program is one of my all time favorite pieces. Sibelius is a just such a singular composer. He is certainly acclaimed the world over, and particularly in Scandinavia and in his homeland, Finland, where he's He's kind of viewed as the most important cultural or any kind of figure in all of Finnish history. There are statues to him and monuments to him and holidays for him, etc., etc. And his music has been embraced as sort of the embodiment of the Finnish people and of Scandinavia generally. And yet I think some people still find his music somewhat mystifying. Uh, His early pieces, the famous Second Symphony and the equally beautiful First Symphony, and a lot of his programmatic music from his early years, owes a great debt of gratitude to Tchaikovsky and to the the, the high romantics. It's very hard on the sleeve, very lush, very expressive. But Sibelius, as he evolved and developed through his, his long, rich life, really wrestled because he was writing around the turn of the 20th century and into the 20th century with the questions of, of modernity and of modern music. And he was aware as he got older in, in the early 1900s uh, of Schoenberg's work and of Stravinsky's work and Bartok and such. And he really, like so many composers of the day, wrestled with the question of you know how modern should or could his music be and what exactly did he want to write. So as his career evolved, his music became ever more focused and dare I say spare in a certain way, and less sort of hyper-romantic and more tightly argued structural in a sort of Beethovenian way. He was was captivated by the idea of how to take a motive or an idea and build a whole gigantic structure out of it, something that Beethoven, as we know, did remarkably well. And uh, Sibelius was consumed with that. And in a certain way, I've always felt that, you know, he wrote and wrote and wrote. And in each piece, he, he got closer to his ideal of not saying anything extraneous, not having extraneous gestures or or extravagant extra things in his music to the point where by the, the end of his career, his seventh symphony and his last great tone poem, Tapiola, he had kind of, condensed his utterances down to such an essence that he basically in sort of mid, late late middle age ceased composing. I don't think he was yet 60 years old. And for the last, well, well he was just about 60 years old. And for the last 30 years of his life, he, he never really composed or certainly never presented or published a single other work. Uh, so kind of a fascinating career for him. And I think maybe in a certain way, it was because he felt that he had, you know, gotten to the point he wanted to get to with his music. The other thing that I think he embraced, in addition to this incredible uh, cohesion and, and condensation, was that he really was a sort of Scandinavian mystic in a way. And his music, I, I believe, gets more and more mystical and kind of magical and in a certain way kind of introspective. He, he had a wonderful quote where he said, it's as if God hurls down the music from, from on high and it shatters on the earth. And my job is to pick it up and, and create like a mosaic, figure out how to put it back together. And he said, in a way, I think that's maybe what composing is. And you have this sense in his music sometimes that it is this kind of incredible assembly of materials uh, in very unique and fabulous ways. But uh, this piece that we're about to play for you, the Fifth Symphony, occupies a very, very special place in Sibelius's oeuvre, because it comes really right at the midpoint of his life. Um, it, It was commissioned, in fact, for the celebrations of his 50th birthday. And it was premiered at his 50th birthday in 1915. Many great celebrations and much acclaim, but he himself was not happy with it and he withdrew it and then worked on it in 1916, reissued it, and then actually, this is all during the First World War, and then actually withdrew it again and did a major overhaul of the piece and only issued it in its final form, the form that we all know it. In, in 1919, and he made really profound changes to the piece. He dramatically shortened the second movement and changed the finale, but the most dramatic change he made was the piece was originally in four movements, and he decided to actually combine the first and the second movements into one kind of big super movement. So originally there was a, a rather broad first movement, and then a scherzo, a fast second movement, and he, I guess, discovered that the materials were so shared that he could actually segue directly from the middle part of the first movement. Movement, The end of the development section, essentially, before where he normally would have a recapitulation or a return of the opening material directly in to the scherzo. And I must say that this gives this whole first movement, which is a rather long piece, 15 minutes or so, it gives it incredible drama and scope and propulsion. So it's a very exciting first movement. To me, the music, particularly from the very beginning, from the opening horn call that the four horns make to the very end, uh, is just the most magical and, and naturalistic music I know. I feel like I'm, I'm somewhere in the wilds of Finland, just experiencing the primordial power of nature. I think that's something that those of us who really love Sibelius connect to. The other thing to know about this piece, which really informs the whole the whole thing, and, and again is something that Sibelius was very interested in and very proud of and worked very hard on, is that it is inspired, and as to whether it was inspired initially or during the process of the composition, by an experience that Sibelius had with nature. He, he had a beautiful country house on a lake outside of Helsinki, and one day, he, as he was working on this piece, he walked out and he writes in a letter or in his diary, he writes, uh, I was standing by the lake and 16 gorgeous swans passed overhead and then he goes into a long discussion about what the sound of the swans is like and then he says something about you know it was such a magical moment God's great majesty revealed the finale of the Fifth Symphony and so what he does in the piece is he's basically transformed the swan call into a trumpet call, which is kind of unveiled just at the very end of the piece. Bum 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 this rolling theme. And then he really constructs the entire symphony in a very teleological way, pushing everything directing everything toward this final appearance of the trumpets uh, fully unveiled in all their great glory, the, the so-called, what he referred to as the swan theme. And so listen as it, as it progresses at how we seem, much like in the Second Symphony, you know, the, we begin to get sort of suggestions of the great theme of the last movement. But it, by the time we arrive there at the great last peroration, it's as if we've already lived with that idea. So one of the great, great symphonies of the early 20th century in its final version, this is Sibelius' Symphony Number no. 5 in E-flat major. It's played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller.
0: Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.